All righty, let's get into it. Uh, welcome back to another episode, Play by Play with Jordan Hughes, part of the Media Vintage Sports Network, and joined by a very special guest today, and someone's become a good friend, and uh, Super Rugby, Fly Half, Counties, Manukau, Auckland Blues, Bedford Blues, Honda Heat, Fiji and Drew. He's been everywhere. Baden Kerr, welcome, my friend. Cheers, man. Thanks for having me. How's life? How you doing, my friend? Yeah, real good. Eh? It's hard to c- complain living on the on the Gold Coast with a lifestyle like this. So, no, I'm very happy where I'm at. So I guess we'll just get straight into it. Obviously, you've had a pretty extraordinary career over a long period of time. Um, obviously, growing up in Auckland, uh, I guess what was your childhood like there? Was it always rugby from the get-go for you or something that came later in life? No, I was a bit of a later, late burner of the old rugby. I uh, grew up playing soccer uh, or football to those uh, hardcore ones and, and loved it. Like, I was probably, I was very natural at it. And um, But as, as you know, New Zealand rugby is everything and it was always sort of something you play at school and primary school when your mates are playing it and you get a bit of grief growing up for, for playing soccer regardless of how well you're doing and I eventually caved about 14, 15 and went to rugby. And then, so you went to school in Auckland, you grew up there and you went to university in Auckland as well? Yeah, we, we, I'm from South Auckland so we, we semi-dissociate um, with Aucklanders even though we pretty much are Aucklanders <laughs> but grew up in the hood more or less and um, yeah, uh, school there, studied in Auckland and the actual Auckland in the North Shore, uh, sport and rec degree and um, yeah, then rugby started sort of kicking off towards the end of that. And were you always a 10 growing up? That was always playing fly half was the go for you? Yeah, coming from soccer, I guess I just naturally would get a ball and kick it before I even thought about anything else. And I think I certainly overkicked when I first started. Um, and oh, to be fair, in my first year under 15s, I played a little bit of 12 because they had a really good 10. Uh, so yeah, mostly 10, a fair bit of 15 here and there, a small amount of 12. And then, so we fast forward... Um, was it Minor 10 Cup back then or Air New Zealand? I think it was Air New Zealand when I first started. Yeah, it changed a few times. ITM, Minor 10. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Counties Manukau, obviously you made your debut 2010. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, was that always the team you watched growing up or was that, was you supported them? Yeah, 100%. Like uh, growing up, there was sort of Joan Lumber and Joe Vendieri were the two wingers at one point in time. And um, yeah, if I ever went to a footy game, it was typically down at Pukekohe at Grower Stadium, uh, sitting on a bank watching, watching some pretty good rugby back in the day. Uh, they had some tr- testing times for a minute there, and uh, yeah, when I got to, to be a part of it, it was a pretty pretty special. Do you time. do you remember your your debut? Yeah, 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 very very vividly. Um, I remember it was actually on my twenty first birthday party evening is when the na- team got uh, announced, and um, that made for a good night. Uh, but yeah, I was very fortunate that first year. I only ended up playing four games and, and got a stress fracture in my back, and um, was very lucky. Uh, to get an opportunity based on a couple of injuries at, at 10 that they had and got to debut as a starter in, um, in Wellington and we hadn't beat them in, in years and managed to, to fluke a decent game there and um, sort of set myself up for the next couple of games and thankfully those four games were enough for them to sort of put enough trust in me to sign me up two years which was nice to have that security. And then I guess once you hit that moment was, was, was it then you sort of knew all right professional rugby this is what I can actually you know it became achievable I guess. Yeah, I was, because it was funny, with football growing up, soccer growing up, um, I was a bit of a freak. I'd go running from like 11, 12 years old and always go to the park and just was obsessed with being a professional soccer player. Like even my mum was showing me old drawings and certificates from school and what you want to grow up was play for Manchester United and stuff like that. Um, So I had a a, a real belief in that when I went to rugby because I was so late to it and um, lacked probably the skills and confidence. I never truly believed I was probably good enough and I even had coaches that would put time into me in school and lunch times and stuff looking back which, which blows me away because they saw something but I didn't necessarily see it myself so as you say when I actually got to play I guess at that minor 10 um, cup um, level I think it's Bunnings I don't, I'm not sure what it is now yeah 
um, that yeah gave me the confidence to know oh maybe I can do this. Um, and yeah, I was from there. It was still battled confidence issues and things like that, but um, that was definitely a, a taste that I wanted to keep getting getting more. Was um, Tana Umanga the coach when you started? Yeah, he he, oh, so lucky there. We had Milton Haig was the head coach. He was, he's an awesome coach, um, very hard-nosed man, very old school, but a really good coach. He gave me an opportunity, and Tana was the backs coach that first year, and then he went into head coach for the next few years after that. What a guy to learn from. Insane. And I think people think, oh, of course he'll be a great coach. He's Tana Umanga. He's been the all-black captain. He's got all this respect, this, that, and the other. But um, obviously that helps in terms of gaining respect that he does but the, the time and effort he put into things and his demeanour and one-on-one and hard conversations and all the things that a lot of coaches don't want to do he was great at so it was sort of fast forward to 2012 you guys played in that championship and it was second tier final was it back then yeah it was a, it's a strange old setup you'd have top seven bottom seven but you'd have crossover matches mm. um so yeah at that point we're in the, i guess the bottom seven we uh yeah it had a really good season managed to get to the final and they even had a few All Blacks that sort of came into the squad in the Otago team that played like Ben Smith and... Uh, Tamari Ellison? Yeah, yeah, well. yeah. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, looking back, it was a pretty insane team that we had. A lot of the boys are still playing professionally. Well, I was going to say that. If you look at that back line form that final, you were the 10. You've got Bundyaki, Nanai Williams, DJ Falls was 7, Augustin Pulu, Tony Pulu, Lilo in the centres, like, mm, class. Yeah, like all, I think the majority of them are still playing professionally and, and really well, so... Um, in hindsight, it was a pretty amazing time and, and we all got along so well too. So that always makes a difference, as you know, when you're involved in a sport. Like if you can have a good time off it and get along off it, then you typically play a bit better on it. Yeah, of course. Like someone like Nano Williams, I used to watch him as a kid. He was just an absolute freak. What yeah. was he like to play with? Oh, he's so much fun to play with. Like he, he was another one that was so talented but put in so much work. And I think that's probably the things that separate him and a lot of the guys that we had in that team at the time is they just had so many natural gifts, but they worked like daily and really hard and just had this competitiveness that I think is the, the difference that sort of separates the top players from maybe ones that don't quite crack it. Well, someone like Arke too, obviously he you know, was worked very hard in New Zealand, obviously now playing over for Ireland, made that switch and he's one of the premier centres in the, in the world now. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's insane because he, I used to play him at school and he was the backup nine for Manurewa High. big nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was so cheeky. We'd be talking smack like the whole game and uh, winding everyone up and, and he got shifted to centre but was in, we sort of, he was sort of in the academy the county's academy at the time and kept getting himself in trouble and strife and wasn't showing up to trainings and was pretty much getting kicked out um, and he sort of there's a couple of really good mentors around at the time Tana being one who sort of like just come on um, pull it out give it one more crack and he was ready to I think he started working in banking and was ready to give up rugby and, and yeah just he put his head down and now look at him he's doing Seems amazing well, Six Nations on the weekend he's mm. massive in the centres mm. there for them um, of course, you won that, that final, 41-16. You were 4-4 four four with the boot from memory. And uh, what was the celebrations like after that win? Yeah, it was, it was a couple of days where there was a good time. We sort of um, had, went to the old local in, in Pukekohe. It's now closed now, which is a um, smart bar, which is a pretty notorious bar back then. So it's probably good it's closed now. But uh, yeah, even went on to Tana, Tana's house the next day. A few of us didn't actually take our shirts and medals off for a few days. So um, yeah, we were pretty smelly boys by the end of it. How old were you then when you won that? Must have been 23. Yeah, right. So young and amongst it, for sure. Yeah, or well, young comparatively to now, <laughs> a decade ago. <laughs> so then, and then would you play the year after? Or was that Auckland Blues came next? That year led into Auckland Blues. So yeah. 2012 uh, pre-season into that year was Blues and then 2013 was, was Blues. So you play both seasons. The Blues sort of starts first at the beginning of the year. 
Um, and again, that was an amazing experience. Managed to play or be involved in every game. Started a few. Uh, yeah, and was sort of learning a lot and enjoying my time. Do you remember the, the call when you said, you know, they're going to be included in that 31-man squad for the Blues for that season? Yeah, it was, it was pretty surreal. I um, had sort of had talks with, with the Western Force at the time. And mm. funnily enough, uh, a good friend of mine now, Gus Angus Cotterill, he signed at that time and he just retired at the same time as me recently. And would have been mad if we sort of ended up um, starting our careers together there. But as soon as the Blues came along, that was my childhood team. Uh, it was Counties Manukau and the Blues. And I'd, yeah, those were the games I'd go to too. And, and um, I'd been involved in the Chiefs the year before as a sort of a training squad member. Uh, and what I learned there was insane. Like that's where they won the, the championship there, and they had Sonny Bill Williams and Tim mm. Miller Williams and Brody Retallick and uh, Sam Kane at a really young age, Aaron Cooden. And, and what I learned there, I think, gave me a lot of belief that I could play the next level. Uh, and then by getting an opportunity with the Blues was that's probably one of my uh, yeah my most favourite moments, I'd say. And now Sir John Kerwin, he was a coach. Yeah. How was he as a, a mentor and a, and a coach? Yeah, it was an interesting time. We sort of had. He was head coach. We had Graham Henry in and out. He was doing a bit with Argentina at the time, but was helping out. McBurn, who was my coach at uh, the Drawer, he, he was coaching. So we had an amazing um, Grant Dory. We had a lot of amazing uh, coaches and things, and it was quite new to a lot of us. Uh, there was a lot of new players in their first year in Super Rugby. I know, obviously, JK had done a fair bit with international teams and stuff, and we started really well um, and sort of tapered off a bit. And, um, yeah, I think... In hindsight, there was definitely things that were really lacking and missing. Um, potentially things that Tana was incredibly good at, those hard conversations and, and things like that. But um, overall, yeah, I, I can't really um, stiff it. It was a, a, a bloody good year. Who was your debut against? Do you remember? The Blues? Yeah. Uh, Crusaders. I played. Gets a run. I came on maybe 20 minutes, 20 odd minutes to go. Was it at Eden Park? Was it? Yeah, yeah. Dan Carter, Richie Ricoeur playing. Managed to get a little because we had a, uh, Mick Byrne, the coach of the draw, who is a traditionally a kicking and, and skills coach, and he loved these different types of kicks that he thought were going to work. And I think one of my first touches was just like a little sort of in between crossfield kick and just bounced up perfectly for I think it was George Moala, um, who pretty much just galloped to the try line. So it was a pretty pretty special twenty minutes. Twenty thirteen debut Eden Park against Dan Carter with Crusaders. You really can't ride it. No. Did you get the win that day? Yeah, we did. We did. No, we started out really well that year and. Um, Sir Mad Butcher, who's a, a big Warriors advocate, he uh, bought the because they were these special uniforms that we played in that had colours of North Harbour, Auckland, uh, and Northland um, that were fundraising for mental health, and and he bought mine, and my brother, who's like my biggest uh, fan, best friend, and, and and biggest role model, he didn't tell me, but he was hitting up the Mad Butcher because he wanted to buy it off him, yeah, um, and the the guy just said, nah, just have it. It's um, I had a few conversations with him as a as a person. He's an amazing man, but just Gave it to my brother, and my brother surprised it to me. So oh, I'm very, very happy with that. Of course, so look at that sort of 2013 squad stacked once again. You know, Malachi Fekitoa, he was in the squad. Um, Marty McKenzie, Bryn Hall, Frank Halai, uh, Kevin Mialamu, uh, Wasaki Naholo, Charles Piatau, Rennie Ranger, the list goes on. Like for you being a young kid, how was it just being around those guys day in, day out? Oh, it was epic, especially some of the old guys like Kevin Mialamu. Like you'd be sitting on the bench... And the times that he was on the bench, he would just be like, oh, what are you seeing? Like, make sure you're looking at that. Like, he was always on it, but in a really constructive and kind way. He's probably the kindest man in, in rugby and a very intelligent football player too. Um, but funnily enough, that year, Malakai and Waisaki uh, weren't necessarily favoured by the coaches, which was insane because obviously we know how good they are now. Um, so they didn't get much game time, unfortunately, and 
we did have a lot of amazing young outside backs and guys like George Moala, who's now over in, uh, in France, and Charles Piertel. And so it was a pretty tough and stiff competition. Um, but perhaps maybe that's why we struggled a bit towards the end is because players weren't necessarily nurtured the way that they could have been and guys like Malakai and uh, Waisaki may not have left. Perry Whippu, we'll see. Mm. It was, I guess you had spent a lot of time together, 9-10 combo. Yeah. He, bit of a character. Yeah, yeah, he is. He loves his, his treats, his sweets. His <laughs> he was caught a bit of flack of his career for his weight, didn't he? Yeah, but as a, as a rugby player, he's one of the most intelligent players I've come across. Like you... He'd been an amazing coach, and I know he's um, loves his fishing and, and his outdoor activities and that. But I'd love to see him come back to it to some degree because he's he's again a, a, a kind of a guy like Tana that he can communicate things so clearly and effectively with with such a kind and caring manner that you sort of he could tell you you're a dickhead and you'd be like, oh, fair enough, I must have done something wrong, you know. Like he, everything he says, you back. So um, he was awesome for our team. Yeah, incredible scrum half over mm -hmm. his career. What about someone like Rennie Ranger? I remember watching him as, as a youngster. He was obviously being a winger, watching him was, you know, he was the guy. Yeah. Uh, how was he to play with? Oh, I, I love playing with him, probably because I was a little bit conservative as a player, particularly with um, like kicking and things like that and um, and exits and, and whatnot. And he always wanted the ball, regardless if everybody just scored. or He just always wanted the ball, like, just give it to me, just give it to me. Just M M1 missed the 12, give it to me. Like, at any stage of the game, he was the... Rawest, rawest form of a footy play he just was fun to him and um, he, he definitely other younger first five struggled a bit with him because you know he's older and they trusted everything and getting a bit of grief by giving him the ball where maybe they should have kicked and things like that um, but you understand why was it why was he was it he would never be trying to give anybody grief or getting out anyone else in the strike, he just wanted the ball and wanted to play and I think that's what made him so good he just enjoyed the game so much and 90% of the time he would just run them over anyway he was so powerful <laughs> ball in hand wasn't he yeah freakishly freakishly powerful so I guess you know the rugby media in New Zealand is pretty tough um, that, that, that year you guys as you said you finished 10th overall how was the Auckland media of you being you're the, you were the 10 or one of the 10s uh, what was that like during that time it was an interesting time for the Blues we there's sort of some jokes around like the 10 um, carousel of like 10s that had gone through the province sort of in the last few years around that before and, and, and after um, so we early doors we, we sort of got a little bit of I guess praise as a team and um, Auckland fans it can be pretty um, I guess have high standards which is fair enough and 70% of the media is based in Auckland so there's definitely the highs and lows but I know th something that Tana taught me was the ones that sort of jump on your back and big you up are going to be the ones that pull you straight back down so I didn't pay too much attention to that kind of thing, um, that kind of stuff. And I guess, um, yeah, the, the, the following year I was out through uh, through injury and, and stuff. So I didn't pay too much attention to it. But, yeah, it's definitely not the easiest place in the world to, to not be doing well, um, Auckland. As a, as a fly half too, you know, the, the team falls or wins on your back, generally speaking. Uh, growing up and being a 10, how did you sort of cope with that pressure of being, I guess, the main man you know, amongst all your teams, I guess? Yeah, I think for me, I've always had a fair bit of imposter syndrome. Like, I've never believed I've been good enough to be there. And I think the thing that helped me in that sense was I was, especially early doors, was overly prepared. So I, half the reason I got a stress fracture early doors was I'd kick for like two hours after a training and um, was pretty meticulous with my um, with my study in terms of what other our teams and players were doing and what our game plan was and picked up a lot of that from Tana. Um, so worked really hard in that area. Uh, but yeah, a lot of it actually comes down to the coaches too. When you feel <clears throat> like you're backed, 
regardless, you naturally seem to feel better and play better. And I think that's an area that some coaches uh, struggle with a fair bit. So when we're at the Blues, we had young nines and tens. It was Bryn and Jamison Gibson-Clark, who is playing for Ireland now. He got let go from the Blues, you know. Um, and a lot of pressure was on nines and tens at that stage. Uh, Why did you make this decision, this, that and the other? And in hindsight, if I was a coach, I would deal with those situations a lot more differently. Maybe more so like a Tana where you sort of sit down and ask why you made the decision and if the answer was, I thought this, that and the other. And he goes, I can see why you did that, that's fine. As opposed to you, this is wrong, this is how you should do it, this, that and the other, which is what some coaches can do uh, and, and maybe dictate a little bit. And as a 10, particularly when the game plan kind of rests on your shoulders, you need to have a sense of autonomy. You need to know that you can make decisions and have a bit of trust. And without that, that's where it can get a bit sticky. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, and then, obviously, you you as a 10, you're probably, uh, you know, structured, sort of crisp, sort of like good, great passing game. Um, obviously, your kicking was was a real strength of yours, but the goal-kicking aspect was another layer to your you as a player. Um, arguably, probably, you know, helped you continue your career. You were such a sharpshooter, so good off the tee. Um, I guess that's a soccer background. Is that something you always wanted to do, the goal-kicking when you played rugby? Yeah, like I mentioned, I'd go to the park when I was younger just with a, a soccer ball or football and would often take a tee and a rugby ball as well so it was always something I really enjoyed doing in primary school you'd do kicking and things like that um, and yet it's probably I, I can't remember who it was but early doors you have coaches and they're kind of like you need to be extremely uh, consistent and good at everything or you need to have something that you really stand out at and obviously work at everything around that but you need to have something that's a point of difference and I think it was it was the kicking that sort of gave me a, a foot in the door originally. I remember uh, we had a psychologist, um, awesome guy, I think of his name in a minute. He's, he's done a fair bit with counties and chiefs and I think he's done a bit with All Blacks as well. But um, I was coming back off a shoulder injury, a stupid one on the piss, something I learned from really quickly, early doors around how not invincible is probably a better word <laughs> for that. You are, and it took me about 15 months to get back into rugby and was working really hard in, in um, the academy at the time. Psychologist said to me, go up to the uh, head coach of counties. And at that time I was you know, in the academy, like just been out from injury from so long, like thought I was, you know, very unimportant to, to the top side. And, and he's like, he goes, next time I come back, you're going to tell me what he said to you, what you need to achieve, how you're going to make it into the team. And I was like, I've been out of rugby for 15 months, like I'm, like low on self-confidence, there's no chance. Like, um, I don't want to ask him. Next week comes around, did you ask him? He's like, oh, nah, nah I didn't have enough time. He's like, go ask him now. I was like, shh, because we're in the gym. <laughs> Went and asked him, and he's like, we've struggled for, for kickers for a while in terms of percentage. Like, we're, we're not sort of, um, we're missing out by one, two points here and there, and a lot of that comes down to the goal kicking. If you can get to 75% plus, uh, then you're probably in with the conversation. I'd started playing a bit of club rugby and pretty, pretty reasonably that year. And I just remember every single game I'd write down what I got out of what, a percentage, and ended up finishing like 85% in the club season that year. And he came to me obviously when we were selected and, and you know, said that was a big part of it. And that kind of probably triggered at the time a little bit subconsciously as well, probably that, that was why I got in there. So it kind of enforced that I needed to continue working harder at that, which again was counterproductive at times when it came to stress fractures and, and overtraining. Mm. Um, and that's all, all on me and my fault there. But um, yeah, I think by having that ideal, that that was something that separated me. It was something that I worked really hard on. So in your, I guess in those Auckland Blues County says, how many hours a week are you spending just kicking the poles? 
Oh, like I early doors, especially that first year in 2010, uh, it was at least an hour after every training. And um, yeah, and it's, it's funny in hindsight, like you probably can't cope with that <laughs> day in, day out, especially when you put together like me, like whoever made me put me together pretty brittily, um, sadly. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, you start to realize, uh, especially when it gets taken away from you, when you can't do the training, it's more around being deliberate. So 15 minutes are very deliberate kicking and training is far more effective and physically more effective than training for an hour or two hours what was your sort of approach to goal kicking obviously now it's it's huge in the game you know it's makes the big contracts can boost by 20 to 30 percent if you're a good goal kicker and then have the presence of mind to step up and the mental capabilities to knock it over when it counts what was your sort of approach to stepping up those big moments and what's going on in the head i guess yeah it's one of those i guess unique skills um that's quite close it's fixed like in a game, you're relying on defenders coming at you and, and pitches are changing all the time and nothing's quite the same. So um, with kicking, like if you put the work in and you know your routine inside and out, the only way you're going to necessarily miss a kick is if you slip, um, you do get inside your head or you've missed a couple early ones that you know you normally should get and then you're questioning your, your approach and, and everything else, which is never a good thing to do. Um, so it's more that, I guess, that... Uh, the practice, putting the time in, being deliberate, knowing exactly your routine, um, and then you don't really feel and feel the pressure when you when you've ticked the boxes during the week. And I think that's where I struggled later in my career was um, the body wasn't as capable in terms of I couldn't get through a, a big training session then go and kick for mm. thirty minutes, and that played on my mind a little bit. I was one of the one that, ones that needed to tick the boxes, like get my twenty kicks in after a, a training and work on my kickoffs and all that and the other. That was something that gave me confidence particularly around that imposter syndrome because I, I, if I did it, then I'm like, oh, I actually, actually can do it. And I started to have a belief through the action as opposed to uh, maybe a more natural um, self-belief that I lacked. Um, so, yeah, if I, in Japan and even in, in, in a drawer, although I thankfully um, stopped thinking as much about my career and just enjoyed myself, which made the kicking easier later on. But when I couldn't tick it off during the week, um, that's when I sort of didn't quite feel as com- confident. I've seen a few. Obviously, you've you've banged them over from fifty. Uh, what was your your range? You reckon at your peak? You know what you reckon you can knock it over from? It's about fifty five would yeah. be my peak. Like obviously, um, like anyone, I'll say with a bit of backing of, of <laughs> yeah. the wind, I'd, yeah. I'd push the sixties. But <laughs> yeah, I was I was comfortable fifty in fifty fives. I'd I'd give it a crack here and there, made one or two. Yeah. Mm. I'll show you a video. You probably know this went viral for oh. for the wrong reasons. Um, for counties, of course. <laughs> Yeah, got more. What uh, sort of your memories of this one? That yeah, like I don't think I'd missed a kick training in preseason. I was actually so mad with myself because it's for some reason that spot there, like just inside the fifteen, was just my sticky spot just throughout my career. And yeah, how how I'd been kicking in the preseason and that training and stuff to to miss that I was filthy. Because. That went over a million views on YouTube and God knows everywhere else. Um, uh, over a decade of pain. And probably not for the way you wanted it to. No, exactly. Got more bloody um, notoriety from missing a kick than, than the ones I made. You made look good though. Just one-handed catch. <laughs> How's it going? You know? Yeah, at the time I didn't feel that way. <laughs> um, I guess so, I guess following the Auckland Blues, um, oh, before we move from that, is there any sort of, I guess, key memories that you comes to mind the Blues and who was the funniest teammates or any wild stories that... Over your time there? We had some real good characters, actually, back at the Blues. We had a guy, Angus Tatavau, who was a, 
a bit of a wally. Um, but that first year was pretty special because one of my best mates from from uh, counties made the team at the same time, uh, and another good mate of his from school who we became really good mates and. And Angus Tarvel, who I mentioned, um, was a bit of a wally. And, and I think because a lot of us boys were quite new to the team and the excitement around it, we had some good times. And I remember um, we got suits that year as our number ones, which was a bit abnormal. Like Bark as a, a company said we could just go and pick a suit and we'd all have our own individual ones, which we thought was pretty exciting as young bucks. And um, the first night that we got to wear them after our first game, uh, we went out, got a bit excited. And, and that's my first introduction to vodka sodas because <laughs> the, the big 120. 13 kg. Um, six friend of mine was like, "Babe, you got to try these. They're, they're unreal. You have no hangover." And he just starts. He's, he's one of those ones where he won't drink often, but when he does, he'll eat them. Um, <laughs> anyways, I think uh, I got home at a reasonable hour that night, and I just remember hearing like crashing and banging. And uh, Ronald walks in with no suit, like just in his undies, and had like ridden a bike home. And <laughs> didn't know where he got it from. Had no memory of that in the morning. And there was like, I don't know if I get in trouble here. It was like stripping money up in the light that we found weeks after that. So I don't know like <laughs> what happened there, but there was just, um, that year was amazing because that house in particular, like it might not have even been Ronald to be fair. It was directly across from um, the stadium, Eden Park. And downstairs used to be like an undercover bar when there was Prohibition in Mount Eden. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it was it had like the shell of it. So we did it up a bit, put like table tennis and, and dartboard and things in there and um, it was cool because it was like a hub. So after games, we'd have all the boys boys around, and yeah, from a, a memory standpoint, it was a very uh, enjoyable year for for many reasons. Yeah, on and off the field, by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess so. Coming into that season, uh, you left the Blues and went to the UK. I guess how did that sort of play? Why? I guess what happened to the Blues to? Yeah, it was a pretty unlucky season. I um, preseason one of the first preseason games broke my trapezium uh, in my hand. And two, three weeks after that, I think it was two weeks after that, um, the boys were off to South Africa. They, that was how they started the, the season. And they were sort of like, can you come? And they got like a guard and stuff. And um, the doctor was like, mm, you could play this, that and the other, but it's a bit risky at this point. Like four weeks would be, you know, best at least. So I stayed behind. I think they were there for three weeks, just over. Maybe just about two, two to three weeks. Anyways, two weeks after that, I played a club game and then badly broke two fingers, dislocated them. Um, just made a meal of them uh, and I guess eventually found out I needed surgery uh, and the surgery didn't go too well and yeah they were just a bit of a mess and was ruled out for that season uh, and then that sort of the coach was like oh well, we don't want to sign you until we see you play ITM Cup or Mighty 10 Cup it was at the time uh, very first game broke a finger mm. needed surgery on that so I ended up breaking four fingers that year and quite badly and didn't realise how bad they really were and had to keep getting surgery on sort of an infection in one of them. And then the other one um, became arthritic first. And then once I went to the UK and the cold, I really started feeling the other one. Broke it again. Then I had two arthritic fingers and I stopped enjoying footy then because like catching a ball hurt. Um, I just wasn't there. I couldn't, I was dreading going to training because the stuff that I loved doing was painful and uncomfortable. And it's one of these things that they talk about with chronic pain. Like a little bit of pain's fine and you deal with it, you know it's going to get better when it's like constant and gets worse as opposed to better it sort of weighed down on me and um, don't look back on those memories poorly because I learned a hell of a lot from uh, a team that was incredible they won the premiership and the European championship that year and there's guys like Owen Farrell and Mara Toji and Jamie George honestly there was so many ridiculous players there that 
if I wasn't there in that moment in time, the things that I can kind of transfer into everyday life and other teams and potentially coaching in the future, um, it was pretty invaluable. But yeah, that was a tough year. I had four concussions that year, broken um, ribs. I had to stop playing footy for about a year after that because of the concussion. So physically wasn't the best time. It's a cruel game sometimes, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? So that was what you're talking about, Saracens, the yeah. English Premiership Club. So you were there when they're from the Blues. How long were you, so you just, it was just one year you were there? Yeah, so I went to the Bedford Blues. They were like a feeder club. Um, played a little bit there and that's when I started to really notice my hands before they got, you know, too, too bad. Um, playing in the snow and stuff, it was an abnormally cold winter getting there so that wasn't great when you got arthritis and fingers. But um, yeah, that sort of, I played some all right footy there, mostly at fullback. Um, but yeah, that, that pain just sort of stayed with me and um, yeah, never really recovered from those fingers, unfortunately. Mm. So you mentioned obviously Owen Farrell. He was there at the time. Uh, do you have much to do with him? Like you worked with him a bit. What was he like as a bloke? Yeah, I, I played a little bit of online 2K yeah. <laughs> NBA with him and um, he's intense, like very intense. He's actually a real like good dude, awesome dude, but... Um, he had, he had a really weird mindset like he didn't want to often go out in public and things like that he thought people hated him or were against him and um, he for someone that is such an incredible rugby player incredible leader um, and, and a great person in, in many regards he wore the weight of the world on his shoulders I'm hoping it's sort of he had a kid um, towards the end of my time there and I'd imagine that's changed his perspective on things but for someone that's so amazing at what he does and is doing so many great things. He, he was very hard on himself to maybe a detrimental level at times, but um, and then you can see why he was so good. Like rugby was everything to him. I guess much like the New Zealand media, for someone like him in, in England, it's mm. the scrutiny would be immense for, for him. Yeah, England's probably worse from a media standpoint, but, but because rugby's not the biggest sport and it kind of... Um, is pretty small and comparatively to, to soccer it's it's not so bad um but yeah the english media can be pretty harsh especially at the international side of things that's where i think the boys really struggled did you like the the uk lifestyle living there like how was that was it just too cold or what <laughs> when i lived there i said the best thing about the uk was europe <laughs> so we're like two stops away in a train station two stops away from a, a, an airport and you can duck away to so many amazing countries and you know, an hour, two hours, three hours. So that was pretty incredible. But the town we lived in was amazing. It was a small, smallish place called St. Albans. Um, had the most pubs per capita in the whole of the UK. Perfect. Um, but it was a really nice town and, and a lot of the boys lived there too. And it was a little bit outside of London, so it was about 35 minutes to get in there on a train. Um, so you felt like you're in a nice little neighbourhood where you, you didn't have buildings and, and everything living on top of you. But if you wanted to get to the city, it wasn't a bit... Uh, too too hard and a lot of really good mates were living there at the time that I could see here and there around rugby and um, I did I did really enjoy my time there. So I guess after that, how was the headspace for you? Obviously a lot of injuries, you know, obviously had concussions. Um, where were you at footy-wise come back into that contract and to assess what was next? Yeah, it was honestly, I reckon, the toughest time I've gone through um, personally outside of a few other things that are, I guess are a bit normal, like um, deaths and whatnot, but in terms of me being at my lowest like I would say I was fairly close or in a state of depression at the time like I um, missed a couple of trainings which I'd never done in my life I, I would drink every now and then on a Sunday um, there's a couple of trainings I went to a little bit hungover which I've never done in my career um, I was fortunate and unfortunate at the time there's a guy going through something similar where he um, 
was sort of pushed on to, to a team and let go from his other contract there at two years. So a really good football player, um, but he wasn't in a good headspace. And fortunately, we sort of had each other to bounce off to some degree. But um, yeah, I found that really tricky because I put so much of my identity and uh, I guess purpose and um, so much of who I believed I was on a on a sport. And when I feel like I didn't have that anymore, I was I was pretty lost for a minute there. Particularly when uh, I was still going to training, no one really knew, um, I guess, how bad my fingers were and how much pain I was in, and, and the concussions as well. A lot of them were lasting a long time, and they have a long-standing effect that I don't think people realise. Is you can just feel irritable and foggy, and um, again, when you're when you're going through low points and you're away from family and and your close friends too, you, you find other ways to deal. And, and I didn't know at the time, and, and probably a lot of the time through my career particularly as a young young male was we use alcohol as coping and like as soon as we feel uncomfortable we find escapes and um, unfortunately that was a time where I did that at, at, at moments and, and I don't regret anything because um, like, yeah, like anything that the, the lower you, you're at the, the harder it is to come out of but the more important it becomes for that change so I was really grateful because I had a guy well, actually, a lot of the a lot of the coaches um, and a professional development guy there who was big on life after rugby and things, and eventually got a couple of interviews to to work as a director of rugby in a in a, a really good high school over there, um, and got an opportunity there, and, and that gave me a whole new purpose. Like I was responsible for twelve rugby teams and a lot of I guess young rugby players and and, and young men, and had a tutor group and helped run the sports academy and stuff, and, and that completely changed my mindset and I. Realise rugby is just the game at that point. So that's how that role really turned a corner for you mentally as well. Mm, absolutely, and forced me to get up early, skip traffic, go to a gym, got into meditation at that stage, um, learnt you know what a self um, reliant routine looks like and how it can make you feel. And um, yeah, just I was very grateful for that time for sure. So how long were you doing that for? That was I was interim director rugby for a term. Um, so that was the, like three terms over there. So that was, I think I started, must have been early September, late October. Uh, and then I spent about another, sorry, another half or three quarters of a term as like after the rugby um, side of things had finished, they brought in the new guy because I was sort of, it came down to two of us in the interview process. So I became interim because he couldn't come from his last school till the second term. So I, got, well, I was lucky I got to do the whole rugby term learn a lot and then from there I was like well I love what I'm doing I love having my tutor group and working with the kids and the coaching side of things so I was trying to get into my they call it PGC over there which is um, postgraduate certificate in education which is like a diploma of teaching here and I just needed one more year of study to be able to teach um, so that was sort of my goal and then started playing some like fun sevens um, over there and got to play some tournaments in UK and went to Denmark and the US um, and I started to get the, get the itch again. itchy feet again. Played some 10s in, in Hong Kong. And then Auckland offered a, a contract to play in the ITM Cup. And um, I was still pretty counties hard. So I said, oh, I was there anyway. You guys went off and we won too. And eventually they did. So I went back to, to TNZ to do the footy side of things. So I was pretty close to being all left behind there and getting into teaching full time. But um, I felt I wasn't quite done. And then how long were you at counties for that second stint before Japan came knocking? So counties, the, the Mighty Team Cup's quite short. It's only about three months. So 
I think I arrived back home in New Zealand about June, played a few club games, and then it leads into ITM around sort of late July, early August, uh, and didn't play didn't play well, didn't play bad, uh, and I was at that point where I was just grateful to be getting another opportunity and playing, um, but was still very competitive in the, in the fact that I enjoyed the daily trainings and, and wanting to get better and wanting to win and things like that, that yeah, I knew there was a bit more in me, so I sort of said to my agent at the time, like, if there's an opportunity in something like Japan, let me know, um, because I'd love to have a, have a crack there. And he sort of said, oh, I think it's best you do at least one more year of ITM Cup because you haven't played properly 15s in a couple of years. Um, and I was like, nah, like, wasn't long since the uh, teaching side of things. So I was like, nah, if, if, if there's nothing, I'm not going to battle away. I'm, I'd rather start life after rugby. Um, fortunate enough that, a, that a, an opportunity came up and I jumped at it. Of course, that was the Honda Heat in Japan. Um, obviously, Japan rugby now has grown incredibly since then. What was it like when you first arrived? A very culture shock, I'm sure, was huge. How did you find all that? Yeah, it was funny because I remember talking to one of the guys I played with at Counties at the time. He'd played a lot in Japan. And he said, um, you know, if you go to Japan, there's one place you don't want to go. And it coincidentally turned out to be Honda, Honda Heat. He's like, there's nothing there. Uh, it's a boring place. Like, you just don't want to go there. I was like, it sort of sat with me and then it came up and I was like, sort of hearing, there's an Aussie guy there that um, had just started, there's a, they're looking to sign a couple more Kiwis, this, that and the other and I was like, you know what, it would probably be quite nice to be isolated and um, I'd just come out of like a 12 year relationship breakup with, <laughs> with a fiance at the time and it was good to get away and be completely isolated and, and completely dive into, um, dive into footy again and I was so grateful I did in that, that first year, like you say, the, the difference in how it developed was pretty crazy from my first to second year. First year, you know, you, at home games you get like two to 4,000 people, some of the away games, a few more, but nothing major. Um, and the guys I had around me were some of my best, best mates today, like I was so fortunate with the, the group of players I got to play with. There's a guy, Clinton Knox, who very good footy player. That's he from played at Brothers yeah. for a long yeah, time yeah. before getting to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good centre. Awesome player. And Sean Treby as well Sean was there. Treby. Those two are like my best mate, Aiden Toa. He was um, he was awesome to have there. And there's a few other Kiwi boys that had been over there a while. A couple of great South African men. Uh, so we just had an amazing group there. Um, Josh Beckius, he was there. So it was it was definitely the most fun rugby of my career. Uh, but then that next year was the World Cup, and that was an amazing to be around. And Japan just completely adopted it. They were singing other people's national anthems and. You know, they all had their second teams and, and then when we went into our season, we were having like like tens of thousands at the game. So Good it was timing. Very, yeah, it was a very different um, year. Uh, but sadly, we only think we played about five or six games before COVID got in the way, which is a shame because we started to play really well. How was the, the training style of the UK, different style of footy? And, and what I hear from Japanese is it's running a lot, the pre-season, fast tempo. How did you go with that? Oh, compared to Saracens, which had resources for days, they were very structured and strict on their timings to the point where the coaches would argue because obviously coaches want more time and trainers know exactly how many Ks you need to be having and high-speed metres and all this and the other. To then go to Japan where it's um, you're on the field for two and a half hours at a time and then you've got to go do a gym session as well, <laughs> like pre-season and summer. Wow. It's, um, it's hectic and that's, that was where I f- first really started to struggle with like soft tissue things. Like I don't have calves and I was having calf issues all the time. Like it was a bit of a sick joke and... <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, it was 
streaks different to, to UK in that sense. It was pretty hard work. And of course, for the Japanese guys, they work for Honda, the organization, mm. then they train as well. How did that sort of all work out for you? Oh, it's, uh, it's tough. To, they would, I think we had technically for them two full days a week, but they were, realistically it was four full days of training a week, more or less. And they would have to work around that. So days off, they were working. After some trainings, they were working. Um, there was a few teams that were fully professional, but I mean, from a perspective standpoint, it was pretty, pretty amazing because you have so much respect for these guys because they're just doing it for the love. Um, like, we'll never complain and just train as hard as they possibly can whilst working in the factory. A lot of the, lot of the jobs being absolutely mind-numbing. So, um, yeah, it was, it was tough because as our team, so when you come out of university and the top universities, obviously the, the top clubs get first pick of the first players. Often they'll have better jobs and office jobs and um, yeah they've got a lot more to offer in that sense and, and um, the, the international players almost cancel each other out to some degree and there's a bit of a separation and potentially uh, talent and, and ability in, in some of the Japanese boys um, but the boys that we had typically were missing out on the top teams but from the two years I was there the development and how much they improved and how much they were willing to get better was insane and we were competing with a lot of the top teams when we ne not necessarily should have been. Um, so to be screwing screws and putting doors on and like some of it was, we went into the factories a few times and it's tough. Mind numbing. It's mm. tough to do that on top of rugby. Some of them are families. It's um yeah had so much admiration for them. How'd you go with the whole the language barrier when you first sort of got there? <laughs> That's where I was real fortunate with uh, Noxie Clinton Knox. So he'd been there three and a half years in Japan. Uh, and he lived in a really isolated spot before coming to Honda, so he was fluent at that stage. Uh, another awesome guy, Manu Lumeki. He, um, oh, he played a bit of sevens, I think. For yeah, 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 played sevens. He, he's scored some awesome tries in the World Cup. Uh, I think one against Ireland when they beat Ireland. Um, but they, we spent a lot of time with them, and we we're in an isolated spot. And they, if we went out to dinner and things, it was pretty. It was probably a little bit too easy at times. Uh, and then we had translators the whole time as well. But yeah, we. The first year we learnt a little bit. Second year we were trying a bit harder because at that point, you know, you spend a year with these guys. They try really hard to communicate and welcome you in and you just want to do your best to kind of give back. So we put a lot more time into our, our learning of the language the second year, but it's, it was definitely tricky at times. So for, I guess, the Japanese style of play, fast, it's frantic. Uh, when that, had you, so in that first year, how did you guys go in the end? Did you... Were you in the silver at second tier back then? Or was it top league? Uh, top league. So the year before, they'd just won and come up. Um, and typically, Honda was a team that would come up, go down, come up, come down. Um, so that first year was the best finish we'd ever done. Honda was ever done. They, um, I guess, won. Um, they came ninth out of the 16, um, which was, I guess, winning the bottom bottom eight. Yeah. Because um, it kind of split into an eight uh, towards the end there. So it was the best Honda had done uh, in there. I guess history, so it doesn't sound very impressive, but um, it was a bit of a, it was a good, great year for us. Yeah. It was a great year for us. So, yeah, it was, I guess our goal was to be top eight. Mm -hmm. uh, we came ninth. Um, so we, again, following to the next year, things change. Like every year in Japan, they change at last minute how they structure it, but we, we were very determined to be considered one of the top teams. Um, so we, we just missed out on that goal, unfortunately. So when, when I was playing at Bond, we used to have a few Japanese guys who would come over. In, in 2015, we had two blokes come. We actually won that comp, the second grade that year. And as you said, just work their ass off. Mm. But 
off the field, the Japanese boys on the piss is something unique. They like they they're pretty conservative and quiet, but once yeah. you get a few drinks and they they love to you know to get up and dance and, and carry on. Uh, how was that side of things for oh, you? That was my favourite. <laughs> like like you say, and um, it only takes one or two drinks, and they get the rosy cheeks. And <laughs> yeah. All the personality comes out, and it's funny in Japan, especially in the smaller towns and cities and stuff. You go into places where you've got your all you can drink sort of menu, but you're behind closed curtains. So mm. even though you kind of have a few drinks and let loose. They're still quite conservative where they keep it within well, their private. Own. Yeah, private. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Like you'd be in any city in Japan, and there'd be like some guys passed out on the side of the road, <laughs> and they've just come out of there like nomi hodai, or you can or you can drink, <laughs> and then full suited. But they're, they're safe. It's fine. And then they yeah. eventually get up and walk home. Can't, <laughs> can't handle much, but. Um, Personality-wise, and I think that's what was as am- amazing when you're in another country with a different with a language barrier, is it becomes more animated. So you kind of see the boys that don't know too much English. They want to communicate, so they'll do it through animation, and they'll know the old words and be really cheeky and funny. And and the alcohol sort of brought that out in them, gave them the confidence. So, yeah, um, yeah, we we had a great culture in that <laughs> sense too. So you're there, the 2019 and the World Cup was there. Um, Arguably one of the best World Cups. Everyone I spoke to that was there was it was just incredible. What was it like for you being on the ground there amongst it? Oh, it was wicked, eh? Like um, Bundy at the time got me t- tickets to a couple of games, and um, yeah, very grateful for that because you sort of got to to be amongst the crowd and, and and witness sort of how passionate Japanese supporters can be, and it was pretty special. I was like learning national anthems and had it written out, and um, just what it did for the city was awesome. Like you felt like you're in a different country at times and you'd just go have a few drinks here and there after you watch a few games had my brother and some of his best mates there at the time for for the playoff stuff and that was one of my most memorable memorable times with the, the school that i taught at in the uk they had a trip over so mm. this would have been um what were we talking four years after i'd three or four years after i'd been there hadn't seen the kids so there i taught oh, a lot of them grown up under 14s growing up and cheeky as they were having drinks and beers and stuff I was like, this is insane so um, what it did for Japan and the city and, and rugby in general was massive. It was awesome. Obviously, they beat South Africa, and that's that'll be down in history. Best results ever. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, great time for the for the country. Yeah, no, it was unbelievable, unbelievable time. So then, after all that, it sort of went downhill a little bit. COVID hit. Uh, where were you at this at this point in time? Yeah, it was, it was a weird time. We um, there was a bit of issues around, I guess, um, drugs and stuff in Japan, where some some international players got caught and. Um, a bit of strife around that where they wanted to test everybody and this that and the other and and at the time COVID was coming a bit more prominent and we were sort of wondering if they were using that because it that was sort of dealt with to some degree but uh, wondering if they're using that to prolong what we're all sitting back being like oh like our borders are closing soon and um, whatnot and, and Japan already lived in a in a way that was sort of COVID safe they would wear masks if you're sick or if you thought people were sick they were sanitised everywhere so I don't think they necessarily thought much was going to happen and we were kind of sitting on our hands for it felt like a month or two before they called it quits because we, we played a few games and they sort of stopped playing them and it was a pretty um, testing time because you sort of have your family being like, I need to get home now. And we're like, oh, is it that bad though? And, mm. and we couldn't play rugby. We were just training here and there. It was a, it was a weird old time. Um, and then eventually I think we heard a, an announcement um, from our Prime Minister being like, get into the country by this time and this was like a Monday and on the Monday they told us we could go home on the Friday and we're like we need to go home tomorrow um, and it was tough because by that point we were all super close as a team and like the, those Japanese boys man they were awesome like 
I went from thinking I had like a week with them um, to sort of winding down the season and, and packing up and saying goodbye properly to like sprint home, pack your stuff up, gone the next day. And um, that was tough because that was the last time I got to see. see when you left there, did, did you know then that you wouldn't be going back? No, nah, in my mind, like not, and definitely not at Honda. Um, in my mind, like, because I've been playing really well. I started playing really well that year. I think one of my last games I was like player of the match and typically I'm not a very, I just really pass the border people like Bundy and, and kick it in the corners here and there. I don't do anything special. So I was starting to play a bit of rugby and enjoying it and, and, and feeling confident and um, wanting to get back to Japan. Um, again, not knowing necessarily how bad COVID was. Um, so yeah, it was a tricky time in that sense and, and obviously that didn't eventuate. And Yeah, it was a, a strange old time. Very weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read, so you would, at that point in time, you played, did you play a bit of counties again yeah. in 2020? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And then... I guess, how did... Because I read that you were potentially going to retire then and then after that and then the Drua arrived. Is that sort of... Talk me, I guess, talk me through that process. Yeah, I was going through my second retirement at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously after the concussions, that was considered my first. And then, um, yeah, after that, because that was, again, I was, I was very... I was, when I came back from COVID, I um, stayed at my mum's and there's a park that I'd train at every day, almost growing up. As a kid, I'd just go there and train every day and do my own workouts and things like that and was really motivated to sort of keep the footy train going uh, and things didn't eventuate there and you signed to counties months later because that's sort of that three month season um, and started I know again I wasn't playing amazing footy but it was excited to be playing again and again COVID was strange we weren't sure if we were going to be playing week by week um, and sort of I guess I fell out of favour with the coach to some degree but it was a, yeah in a, in a strange way and sort of stopped getting picked and lost a lot of confidence and started to realise maybe the Japanese thing wasn't going to happen um, and I beat myself up a lot being like, you know, like I've spent, played so many games for counties and, and done a lot um, with them and, and had amazing times to um, not even having a conversation at the end of the season to being like, uh, where are they going to bring you back? Not nothing, nothing was really there in that sense and I found that time really tough because I guess I was like, well, started to almost uh, be self-deprecating and beat myself up and again, drunk too much and, and was dealing with it in the wrong ways uh, until I was like, I'm going to have to move on and do something. And, and I think I was lucky in the sense of the UK where I'd been there before. So I snapped out of it pretty quick and um, wanted to do my teaching, but uh, I knew that was going to be another year spent at home. And it's pretty much been a year at home during that COVID time, which I uh, got to see my first niece born and, and things like that, which was awesome. But it was, yeah, I was ready to... I'd lived in, in Japan by myself for two years, um, so I just wanted my independence. So did yep. the real estate certificate, and that gave me something to focus on. Um, and was was pretty content that uh, that was rugby. To be fair, I a, a really good mate of mine um, had four spare bedrooms in his home and said, "Just come stay with me." When I was doing the real estate, closer to work, started diving into it. Didn't know what I was doing, like anything. It's brand new, but I was pretty committed to seeing where it could go um, and then yeah the, the, the phone call came more or less chatted to the drill coach and they had a fair few injuries to tens and um, I've been going to the gym every day had that routine like I did in the UK and was sort of semi-fit uh, and I spoke to my brother he said should I do this like I'm pretty broken and beat up and all the rest of it and he's like and you can make the decision rah rah and then like he's he's one of the best people you speak to. He doesn't give advice. He will ask questions and allow space for you to make your own decisions. 
best way to do it. Yeah, he's amazing at it, and he taught me. He teaches me so much in that sense. And yeah, it's one of those things where you think about it and you sit back and you know, I can be engulfed in a completely different culture, one that I'm reasonably familiar with because I've played with so many Fijian boys at counties. Um, in Australia, so I've got that familiarity. Like I've lived in different places before, and in Japan it could be quite tricky because you don't have the familiarity. Uh, and I was like, I can't. Like, if I don't do this, I'd regret it for the rest of my life. And it was the most amazing experience I've had to date. Because it was eight years since you played for the Blues and then back with the Drua. Uh, what was it like when you first went into camp that first day? One, because you're the only non-Fijian in the squad. Um, new franchise, new history is all starting. Uh, how was that? You know, take me back to that day one. Yeah, it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty intimidating. You don't really know what to expect. I was more concerned. Another like issue of mine has always been caring too much about what other people think, and you never know how you're going to be accepted. Uh, I was grateful getting to the airport. I got to meet a couple of the boys on the flight from NZ to Fiji. The boys that were, you know, playing in in New Zealand and stuff. So that was an, a nice introduction to some some good people. Um, but then arriving there, the boys were like I remember us all sort of walking up to dinner at the time in their little cafeteria there, and all the boys were amazing. Like every single one stopped to say hello. Um, I had these two guys, that, especially one at the time, sat down with me, spoke next to no English, was um, trying so hard and making me feel super welcome, and was a real character. Um, Penny, he's hilarious. Um, so I was immediately I felt. Like I'm in the right place, which sounds outrageous because I've got no Fijian heritage. I didn't really have a right to be there, um, but at those moments in time, you realise like it's there's not anything outside of that little bubble, that little circle. So, yeah, I was I was amazed how incredible they were at accepting me. Did you have to do those Fijian sand dunes at all? You nah, no, you avoided nah, them. I was lucky with that because we didn't get to Fiji till deep in the season. Yeah, so the you guys are based up like Casarino. Were you? Yeah, but for the South Lennox Head. Lennox, yeah. Yep. Yeah, beautiful spot. Yep. Just unfortunate with all the flooding and stuff. So, Of course, so that first win came against the Rebels. Um, were you in the 23 for that side? Yeah, I was supposed to be starting, but I had a groin issue and tried the warm-up and that, that was no, no good. good. So yeah, had to pull out of that one, sadly. But yeah, it was um, amazing being on the sideline part of that because, uh, yeah, always turning it around because it was a real belief thing. They mm. had everything physically... Um, they're structurally like Skipper Cup in Fiji it's all natural talent more or less and offloads and, and that there's not too much structure necessarily so to go from that and a lot of the boys with COVID in Fiji not playing over a year to a pre-season that predominantly focused on getting them in shape and fitness to then a bit of rugby then straight into super rugby is insane to go from um, was it two games um, where physically we're fine but they didn't have the belief yet to then to completely turn it around and almost as if they're like, we, we're actually, we've got some, we've got an ability to beat teams here. To, to, to winning like so soon, I think was really special and gave the boys a lot of belief. And then when you played your first game for the Drua, obviously all that time away playing Super, do you notice any key differences from 13 to 21 or 22? <laughs> I mean, physically probably wasn't as, I was probably a couple of kgs lighter and <laughs> not quite as physically able and, <laughs> Uh, a bit more aware of <laughs> things, but I think the excitement of that that game was was amazing. And it, and it, when you when you're in a situation like that, it's so much bigger than you. Like I was next to there was when you're younger, you think I've got to play well, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Like if I don't do that, then I won't get selected this week. Blah blah. The rest of it, like 
to me it was like I've just got to do the best I can for these boys who are feeling a whole lot more pressure and excitement and all the emotions than I am because like everyone back home they were sending like getting TVs and satellites and mountains with like extension cords of hundreds of metres to be able to see like games and stuff and like the whole of the country was like behind them but these boys have never been at that level so a lot of them would feel a bit stress um, so I I was just grateful to be be a part of that and know that I didn't necessarily have the same sort of pressures and things that, that, that they did so um, I thought they handled themselves amazingly particularly after games um, it quickly turns from a, a sport to, to family and people um, and that what that's what makes them so special. I was going to say the the Fijian culture is all about family and faith. It's it's must be a pretty special environment to be. And you see how they in their huddles before the game, mm-hmm. the passion that you know how emotional they can be um, to be wearing the, the Druid jersey. How was that for you? Just taking all that in. Oh man, it's giving me chills just now. Honestly, like uh, every night we'd have a thing called Lotu, which is sort of like a little church service where the boys sing and um, they'll you know have stories and hymns and, and all sorts and um, and I'd. I'd send it on on the Instagram on the messenger page the the lyrics and stuff. So it was pretty amazing singing along. But just seeing um, they can go from joking, laughing, being absolute clowns and, and enjoying life to just um, being so like dialed into something um, with such like purposes, insane in those songs and stuff before and after games. Like you start to realise what it means to be present. Like we practice it so much in the West because we're so concerned about what we did in the past and what's going to come in the future whereas when these boys are singing when they're in those moments like there's no one else around they're so present and the same thing with the kava type ceremonies like you know we finish something and it's about excitement and you drink to get to a certain level to dance and go have a good time and the rest of it they can sit there for hours on end drinking kava, having conversation and you see why Fijian people are so kind and grateful and remember names and, and they're just such present people. Coaching wise you had McBurn, uh, which you had a bit of experience with before. I know Brad Harris was there as well. Um, he used to coach at Bond, mm-hmm. hell of a coach mm-hmm. I found. Mm-hmm. Uh, how was how was the coaching dynamic for you? Obviously they were also non Fijian. How was mm-hmm. you know, how did it all play out? Oh the the best thing for me was Brad um, and Jacko, I think Brad had a fair bit more time with the boys before. He'd coached them as well um, back in the, what they call the cup here again? The, the Pacific Nations? No. Uh, sorry, yeah, he helped there too, but yeah. when the Drew were playing the... Um, oh, the NRC. NRC. Yeah. Uh, so he had a real insight into what it, it kind of took. Because I, I think it's it's so simple with um, you know Fijian boys and a lot of Pacific Island boys I played with, is you've just got to like care and like gain their trust and whatnot and Brad was amazing for me he's like just dive into it like he had first like the lotto and stuff um he's like I was like do I do I go to that and he's like oh if you want to I'll go here and there and I was like oh, I'm gonna go so I just went to every single one and, and you realize how powerful that can be um so he was awesome because he understood a lot of the cultural that works yeah things and how they work and and he cared for them like mm. he'd done Isn't so he much a passionate bloke. yeah insanely passionate like he was an amazing like that man I think yeah, he needs to be given a piece of land like <laughs> in Fiji, like the what's the the sevens coach and the rest of it. Like yeah. he's, he's massive. Um, so and they all they all kind of they complement each other quite well. Um, they were very kind, caring individuals for the boys, but also could be quite straight and 
had high expectations and yeah it was um it was a good group how was it obviously new team new year new squad obviously had some crushing defeats lost by a lot of points mm. how was that when you you know to turn around and the mentality in the group when you went through those low points during the year you start to realize what's important for those boys like you would have noticed the games in fiji Incredible. like yeah. like a um just a fraction away from winning you know against two of the best teams in the world uh, in new zealand um and we've been in a situation where we're living in cabins for so long in a pretty abnormal time where it was constantly raining we had to move around a lot because of that living out of suitcases away from family all the boys and it's pretty understandable there's going to be like ups and downs and and how the boys coped and managed through all those times we went from Lennox to Sunshine Coast back to Lennox to Gold Coast to Lennox briefly to Brisbane to Fiji to Brisbane to Gold Coast to Fiji like um and their boys never complain like they, there's a lot of things, a lot of holes based on my experience in different teams that were lacking and that's again understandable in a brand new setup, uh, in a brand new team and a lot of boys that I would have played with including myself would have you know, complained and picked holes in this and that and, and the beauty for me was I could see things and would want to make differences and change and help but their energy was contagious, like they could still find the fun in everything, they just amazingly contagious people sounds like this whole experience for you reinvigorated everything you needed for your rugby career you got to the end of that season um obviously where you're at headspace end about you know continuing on you know hanging them hang up the boots you know, how was your your take on that mm, i think it became a lot easier to to leave the playing side behind i could definitely get the boots on every now and then when i go down to to bond from a coaching perspective um but you realize Again, you separate yourself from, from the game. And I got to a point uh, in my career where it was I was grateful to get through a training and I was still as motivated to, to enjoy training and do the rest of it. But physically, if I got through a training, I was happy. Yeah, And that, that to me, wasn't living anymore. Um, and to, to when I left the other two times, I almost had like a resentment to rugby. I didn't want to watch it. I didn't want to talk about it. Um, probably because subconsciously I knew that I had more to give that I, I didn't, I could have done better, I would like to give more, whatever it may be. Because this time I love, I love watching the boys the other night beat the force, going to bond and seeing the boys' excitement and how they train and their receptibility to, to learning new things gets me excited. So I've, got, I've found a way to kind of still be involved so soon after leaving um, with an excitement for the game, which I haven't had when I've left it before. So if you look back at your career, incredible journey, obviously ups and downs like anything. Um, you should be pretty proud of how it all paid out for you. Um, is, there, is there highlights that stand out for you? Like is there you know, single moments you think you know, that, was, that was incredible to, to live? Yeah, I'd traditionally say it would be the games, certain games and, and moments in those games. And without those moments in those games, I wouldn't have probably what, how I'd answer that question now, which would be the relationships. Like... Um, Early on in my career, I was so concerned. If I trained well, then people would like me more. If I played well, people would like me more. Um, I deserved to walk around with a sense of confidence if, if I'd done well from a rugby playing perspective. If I didn't, I was, I was scum. Why would anyone like me, this, that, and the other? <clears throat> so I missed, I believe, a lot of the fun of footy in those moments. 
um, with counties was a bit different because the guys I had around me were so humble, awesome um, people. Um, but as I go get on, like it's it's the relationships. Like I look back on my rugby career and realize how fortunate I am to have to come into a, a new team wherever it may be and you pretty much adopt like 30 40 mates like that's how rugby works like not like everybody's going for the same goal everybody wants to be successful everyone wants to win it's very rare that you get ones that are just there to show up at that level um and i miss that part of it like whereas in an everyday workforce or uh, other places like this everybody's got their own goals and their own agendas which is absolutely fine but in a rugby environment when everyone's sort of going for that same thing like you're willing to get concussions break bones that kind of purpose is um pretty counterproductive saying it out loud but um having that desire and care for other human beings to do whatever it could take physically um is something amazing and the relationships now that i feel from rugby and what it's given me is what i'm most proud of is having those those friendships and relationships you mentioned it now. Obviously, I retired for the third time. It's done now. Uh, we've spoken about it briefly before. Life after rugby. How are you finding the adjustment? Obviously, living on the Gold Coast now. You're, you're back in the real estate game. Um, how is the different set of routines for you now? Yeah, I think routines is the thing that is making the transition make sense to me. Uh, like it's really, it's really difficult. Like it really is, and I think it's something that uh, isn't spoken about enough. Um, in terms of people in any sport leaving it and, and what they do next and there's some scary stats around how long it takes to find a career and sort of the mental headspace you can get into and, and a lot of it's you know out of the hands of us like the serotonin you release playing footy and in front of crowds you can't find um, you can't find can't that high you can't else. find that high anywhere else so uh, like you say the routines getting up at the same time going to the gym um meditating, eating the right things, all these things that you get told to do when you're playing footy and growing up that you're kind of like, eh, all good. You realise those are the things that set yourself up and it's, I've done some, a, a number of different jobs in my, in my time around rugby and stuff and you realise it's not, it doesn't really matter what you do. Like if you've got a, the right mindset, I suppose, um, you can find fun in anything and at the moment, do I find real estate and, and working in a new career difficult? 100%, like, some days I'm like, I don't want to be there. Um, but that's part of it. Like it's, you realise how much of a bubble rugby is and how amazing it is and how much of an emotional rollercoaster it is. And you beat yourself up when you get out of it that you're 33 in my case and I've got mates that have multiple houses and 12, 15 years into careers. And then you stop and you're like, I, I can't compare myself to that. Like I'm starting afresh. Like it's literally the old adage, like it's just one day at a time and I don't know if this is what I'm going to do forever necessarily, but um, I'm enjoying the uh, the personal challenges and I'm super fortunate to, to have met you and, and the boys at Bond straight after retiring that have given me a lot of friendship and time and love and kindness. Um, there's so many amazing boys in that in that team and that setup um, that help guide you in directions, whether it be kicking, coaching and little things that scratch you or tick you. Um, scratch your, your itches here and there and, and make you feel good so um, I'm very fortunate where I am so it's just one day at a time really and on the, the coaching thing you're doing a bit of kicking work uh, is there something you want to pursue the coaching avenue it is and I think from a, a specialist standpoint I um, 
I suppose playing in, in many different countries and, and traveling around a lot and not really having a solid base for a long time uh, makes me realize it would not it'd be nice to have have that um, while still being able to travel here and there um, so by doing something like a specialist area I feel I can you know have the enjoyment and be able to get that um, fulfillment from coaching and being around the boys and passing on knowledge to without necessarily like a seven day a week job where if you want to do well in rugby coaching it's pretty tough to, to, to it's in the hands of success and so many other things and, and I, I kind of want to have a base and that kicking side of things I think has a has a bit of an avenue there. If you sort of touch on rugby more generally now um, state of the game I guess in Australia and, and you being played and lived all over the world what's your sort of take obviously moving to the Gold Coast seeing Rugby Australia you know what's your general outsider thoughts of where the game is at here? It blows my mind Rugby in Australia to be honest um, the the level the Queensland is it the Queensland Cup what do they call it? Uh, the Queensland Premier Rugby? Yeah, yeah yeah the Premier Rugby Comp like, there's some amazing players like Bond's got so many amazing players that are professionally I can be playing professional rugby in, in, in many different countries around the world. So it blows my mind this, that there's a, this step up is from pretty much unpaid club to super rugby. So there's just, I feel like there's a gap, whether it be below well, and above. Well, there was the NRC. And yeah. I guess the, the issue is, I guess we don't have the the fan following mm. like New Zealand does, where it's religion, where you compete against four other codes and yeah, that product wasn't viable. Mm. But they need, you're right, there needs to be something in the middle somewhere. But. Mm. Um, it's like you say there's rugby league and AFL and all sorts here so I, I understand it's just um, so many players that I think could get experiences to play in Europe and the UK and Japan and what have you that miss out maybe because whether it be agents or teams overseas and that will look at the competition they're playing now and just see it as club whereas a, a large majority of them could be playing a level up and then that potentially would give them opportunities whether they want to take it or not um, is entirely on other people but yeah, like you said, they're just sort of lacking that extra level. Super Rugby Pacific begins uh, next week. Any, uh, what's your bold predictions? How do you think you saw the Drua play on last Thursday? What's your, what do you reckon for the comp ahead? Yeah, I guess in a situation where yeah, time is, is precious and you don't have too much, but watching a, an entire game of rugby seems like a lot to me now. But um, I'm, in, in that way, like I enjoy watching rugby um, when I know people playing. Like that's where I enjoy it. So I, I'm going to be following the draw pretty, pretty closely. I haven't seen enough or not enough um, from other teams, but based on what I saw Thursday night at West against um, the Force, um, it's just going to be so much fun to watch the draw. Like it's we've got eight home games too. Yeah, which is going to be oh, awesome to see. Just to see how happy the boys are living at home, mm. like being near what they enjoy doing, their family having the everyday life, having like some freedom. And that can only help their performance. Exactly, exactly. So, and teams are going to struggle in, in Fiji. It's flipping muggy and hot and there's some interesting time games over there. So I guess I, I, don't watch, I, I watch rugby for the enjoyment now and yep. I genuinely have found the, like a childish love for the game when I watch those boys play. Like, um, so I'll just be following them and I think they'll knock a few teams over and yeah, not sure who... Who the favourites and, and that is. I think it's as, as, yeah. as usual. Yeah. Um, again, then we look further on in the year. Rugby World Cup in France. Can't wait for this one. It's going to be huge. Um, I guess from a New Zealand point of view, 
under a bit of pressure in New Zealand for the first time in a long time. It was against the loss against the Irish at home. Um, there was a bit a lot of coaching drama. What's your thoughts on on your home native there? Yeah, it's we all love like Scott Robinson, eh? <laughs> yeah. Like, wouldn't it be fun to to sort of bring a, a completely new? Well, there was a bit of chat about him and the Fiji coaching role. I've really? heard that as well. Yeah. He came over to like after the Super Rugby season last year and was just enjoying his time over mm. there. So, wouldn't that be yeah. a get? Yeah. Would it what? But yeah, I think it, it got a bit fractured there because <laughs> I yeah. I, I don't know Ian Foster too well. Come across him a couple of times just through playing and against his teams and stuff. But um, like it's as you know, the game's changed so much in so many ways, and I think a lot of it comes from a place of understanding what players are going through in a, in a time where social media and everything is a lot more easily accessible, and you feel and hear, and people have an avenue to really bring players down and whatnot and having a Scott Robertson or somebody that's like not too far removed who understands it well who truly cares about the players and has a lot of fun with it I just would love to see the all black environment go I that way that, I don't think it'll happen no nah. I think Foster's locked in too I know after. Um, but yeah again like a, this is just a, an outside opinion but mm. um, yeah who knows Yeah, and I find it like I said I enjoy watching rugby now so mm. I find it exciting that um, other teams catching up and well, international rugby now is even as it's ever been yeah exactly so like you, it's fun watching games where you don't know who's going to win anymore mm. so who wins it do you have a prediction for me I'm going to say the All Blacks they're going to pull a rabbit out of the hat but um, I really enjoy watching like the, the islands and, and the ones that get a little bit hyped up and um, I yeah, and obviously love watching Japan and I can't wait to see Fiji because I feel like they're going to shock a few teams but yeah, to be honest, I'm just looking forward to watching a game here and there. Yeah. Should be good. Um, finally, I also do a bit of a rapid-fire question to finish. I uh, really appreciate you coming on, mate. It's been great no, to chat. Um, Alrighty, so just a quick-fire six questions, whatever comes to mind. So you've got your biggest night ahead of you. You're going out in the town. What two former teammates are hopping in the cab with you? <laughs> I'll bring Ronald, the one I mentioned that, that introduced me to soda water, and <laughs> get him off his farm in Taranaki. Oh, that's tough, guy. That's a tough question. Um, I'm just, I'm even overthinking this. Where like, who would Ronald get along with really well? <laughs> uh, oh man, and between Noxie and Treves, I'm gonna. That's tough. <laughs> you, you, can I, I have three? You can take someone on the bring, front. All good. I'll bring Noxie and Treves as well. There you They'd go. all get along. Um, out of all the places you've lived, what what was your favorite place? Or you know, taking in all aspects of it. I have to say Japan. Say Japan. Best coach you've ever had? Tanu Munger. Favourite player to play with? Oh, so many. I loved playing with August Pulu inside me and Bandiaki outside me. Best player you've played against? Oh. So many good players. <laughs> <laughs> um, the ones that have got up my skin would be like a um, like a Brody Retallet. Like, he's just a menace. Like, you feel pressure from him. Like, and I even think of the training. So, he's someone you don't like playing against. And finally, mate, one piece of advice you would offer to someone coming through the, through the ranks trying to make it professionally? TSPDS. Do the shit people don't see. Everyone can show up to training and do the rest of it, but do shit behind closed doors. There we go. Baden Kerr, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, man. All good.